I would invite the kids to go ahead and head out to Children's Church. All right, check that. Kids, stay there. I don't think there's someone back there. Is that the word on the street? Okay. I don't think there's someone. So, hey, join us. Hang tight. It's going to be a good service. I won't preach too long. I promise. (laughs) Sit down. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, At this point, we're going to kind of change things up a little bit. We're going to take our offering, and then we're going to get into our sermon. Uh, So at this point, the guys are going to get that ready. Uh, Just by way of quick reminder, uh, as we take our offering, we give of everything we are uh, to God. Everything that we have is His, our time, our energy, our efforts, our gifts, and uh, our money. So we're going to give uh, to Him as He has given generously to us in all things. And so we're going to do that, and uh, then we're going to hop into our sermon. Let's go ahead and pray before we jump into our text. Father, uh, it's good for us to be here. Uh, we're so grateful that uh, we can come and that we can sing praises to you and that we can sing praises to your Son and to the Spirit who uh, lives and dwells uh, among us. Father, we're so grateful uh, that you are indeed faithful. Uh, you're a faithful God. Uh, everything that you say uh, is accurate. Everything that you promise uh, will come to pass. And Father, your character is unchanging. Um, you never change. You never fail us. Father, in spite of our many failures, uh, in spite of our many uh, faults, in spite of our sin, God, in spite of our uh, fickleness, um, you indeed remain faithful. And we're so grateful for that. Father, I pray now uh, as we uh, open up uh, your holy word, uh, Father, I pray that you uh, would open up our eyes to it. Father, I pray that your spirit would be among us, uh, convicting us of sin uh, and just stirring in our hearts, uh, uh, making us love you more, uh, making us desire to be obedient to you, uh, bringing us into a relationship with you through Jesus. Uh, spirit, would you be among us? Uh, would you please move in a powerful way? And uh, we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. All right. If you have your text, uh, Bible this morning, I'd invite you to go ahead and get those out. We uh, have begun a series in the book of Judges, and we will continue in that this morning. So if you have your text, uh, pull uh, it out and turn with me to the book of Judges. After uh, the first five books of the Bible, then you got Joshua, then Judges. And we will be camping out in Judges chapter 1 this morning. So if you have your text, Judges chapter 1. If not, no big deal. We should have the text up on the screen. Again, Judges chapter 1. I've entitled uh, my sermon this morning, Living, Living with the Enemy. There is a movie that came out not too recently, uh, actually not too uh, far, uh, long ago, I think 2005, and the movie is called Mr. and Mrs. Smith. How many of you are familiar with this movie, Mr. and Mrs. Smith? Okay, many of you. Um, there's a, a, just to kind of recap for those of you who uh, may not be familiar with it or uh, refresh you, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Smith uh, came out in 2005, and uh, uh, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are kind of the co-stars in the movie, and uh, they play a married couple of five years, uh, John and Jane, whose marriage has just kind of become blah, um, and as they uh, live out this kind of uh, mundane life, uh, behind the scenes, they both are living secret lives. Behind the scenes, they are both actually secret agent assassins, and not only are they keeping that from one another, but they actually uh, work for rival agencies. And so as the plot continues on, uh, they get put on the same uh, job, if you will, and uh, one of them gets identified, and to make a long story short, they end up being each other's next target. And so this, the clip that I'd like to show you this morning is a clip to where uh, Jane and John are, are coming home, and it's to the point to where they're coming to the realization, they're coming to the realization that unwittingly and uh, unknowingly, they have been living with the enemies. Let's watch this together. All righty. <clears throat> In the scene that we've just seen, uh, 
we see Jane and uh, John coming to the realization that for all these years, they have been living with a traitor, with an enemy in their midst. As we jump in the, into the text of Judges chapter 1, uh, Judges really begins with the military conquest of the nation of Israel. If you remember, uh, Joshua, uh, their former leader, uh, militarily and otherwise, spiritually, has died. And it is their job now to uh, continue to take and to take control of the promised land, the land that God had given them. And so as we move into Judges chapter 1, uh, we see that Israel's military conquest begins pretty good for about about half chapter one, we see that it's going well. They're being obedient to God. But uh, slowly, surely, uh, Israel begins a seemingly harmless series of compromises. A seemingly harmless series of compromises that will eventually lead them, much like Jane and John, to the realization that they too will, be in, will end up living with an enemy in their borders. So let's go ahead and jump into the text. A uh, couple sections, two big blocks of, uh, of section, if you will, in chapter 1. The first section is found in verses 1 through 21, and we really see that military victory characterizes this section. Um, so let's go ahead and read the text. Uh, we're going to kind of camp on uh, some selected text here. We're trying my best to summarize and get the, the general flow of the text, but let's begin where the text begins in chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And so God answers in chapter 2, the Lord, uh, verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given, I have given the land into his hand. And so let's jump back uh, to verse 1. Uh, again, kind of to summarize where we've been, uh, Israel has taken most of the promised land. They control good parts of it. And God has kind of divvied up uh, his land to each of the 12 tribes. And so Joshua dies, as we see in verse 1, after the death of Joshua. And so the people are left. What are we supposed to do? Our military leader is gone. Uh, there is still land that is left to be conquered. People that are left uh, to be kicked out uh, because of their evil influence uh, upon Israel. And so what they do, I think rightly so, the book of Judges begins well. Uh, they inquire of the Lord. They ask God, what is it that we're supposed to do? And so they inquire of the Lord and God responds in verse 2 and he picks out one particular tribe. In verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. And so God responds. I think this is probably an unusual uh, response. I don't think the people necessarily expected this. I, my guess is that they probably expected another man to be picked out, another military leader, someone to uh, secede, if you will, Joshua. But instead, God very clearly says, now it's the tribe's responsibility. Each of the 12 tribes, it's now upon you, it's your responsibility to go and to take the land that has been allotted to you. But Judah... I want you to begin. Uh, and so he, and so Judah uh, is given this divine commission. But notice, not only are they given a divine commission, but God gives them, this is really significant, God gives them the promise of victory at the tail end of verse 2. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And so the book of Judges begins well. God's people inquire of him. God responds. God says, I'm going to be with you if you are faithful to do what I've asked you to do, to kick out the inhabitant, inhabitants of the land, to take it. If you're faithful, if you're obedient to me, I'm going to be with you. Things are going to go smoothly. And so we've seen kind of the introduction to chapter 1. Uh, later, I invite you to go home and kind of read the book of Judges and read chapter 1 as a whole. But I'd like to summarize a little bit for you. Basically, from there on, from verse 3 to verse 18, the whole kind of first half 
of chapter 1 of the book of Judges, what essentially we see is that Judah does exactly what they're supposed to do. Um, We see summary statements of different battles. And so if you were to go home, and I encourage you to do that, to read uh, 3 through 18, essentially, Judah is victorious. They go, they're supposed to take possession of the land that God had allotted them, and they do it. They're successful. God is with them. They are obedient. And so really the first half of this whole chapter is marked with victory. It's marked with obedience. They obey, and God is gracious to them. Then to jump ahead to what I consider fun, and that's verse 19. Remember, up until this, statements of different battles, Judah is winning, God is with them. But in verse 19, something different altogether happens. Verse 19 begins this way. And the Lord was with Judah, as he promised he would be in verse 2. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country. But, a very significant word, but, here comes the contrast. Something is just not right. We begin to get a, a whiff, a smell, if you will, of defeat, of compromise, of disobedience. But, he, referring to Judah, the tra- but he could not, tr- but he could not drive out inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. And so, verse 19, things start to go south. Things have been going really well. People have been obedient. God is blessing them. But in verse 19, we see the slow descent in chapter one of compromise within God's people. They take possession of the hill country. They're doing well. God was with. But he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they have chariots of iron. Now, upon first reading, this really, I mean, this should make us scratch our head because it seems to be contradicting one another. The Lord was with Judah. God was with this, this tribe, with people, but they couldn't. <laughs> if God wanted them to, surely they could. If God wanted to defeat chariots of iron, surely they could. And so this is, it builds tension in us. There should be a little tension going on. Well, God is with his people, but they fail. They fail here. I think maybe a little more clearly, uh, a look at language is helpful here. Most translations uh, translate verse 19, the but, this way. But he could not. But he could not. I don't think this translation, really in the original, what it says is, he did not. See the difference there? He did not drive out the inhabitants of the plain. So what we see here, it's not that Judah could not have taken these chariots of iron. It's not that they couldn't. If God was with them, surely they could. We've seen it time and time again. It's not that they couldn't win. It's that they didn't even try. They failed to do it. They began to compromise. They were supposed to take the plain and the hill. But they saw these new age weapons. If, if there was Discovery Channel's future weapons, these iron chariots would be on the show back then. It would be on future weapons. Now today, iron chariots, big whoop. This was the beginning of the Iron Age. Everyone had iron. Iron's very strong. And so what we see is these Canaanites had top military equipment. And the people of God saw that, and they willfully disobeyed God. I think either they were content with the land that they had already conquered, saying, you know what, we've conquered this much, I know we're supposed to take that, but we're going to be content. simply did not believe that God would be with them and enable them to overcome the future weapon, if you will. Either way, it's not that they couldn't win, 
It's that they chose not to. And so what we see really from this point on in chapter 1, verse 19 on, Judah introduces military compromise. They're supposed to take all of the, the land. They're supposed to kick the people. But there's a slow descent of compromise. The way I see it is there's a drop of, of colored dye in, in a pit water, and it starts as just a drop of compromise. But as we move on throughout the rest of the chapter 1, and as we see the rest of the tribes begin to compromise as well, small drop compromise, that small drop of dye begins to dilute the entire uh, pitcher of water, if you will. And so we see the beginning of compromise in verse 19. A couple principles that we see here. I want to pause and talk about what this means for us. A couple principles I think we see uh, for us. And the first principle that we see on the uh, screen is that victory rests on obedience. Victory rests on obedience. We see this really clearly throughout the book of Judges, but really clearly in particular in this first section. When Judah, God's chosen tribe, was obedient, uh, stro- uh, they strove to God's commands to do everything that he said. God gave them victory. God's grace was upon them. His power was demonstrated in their life. But when they chose to compromise, victory was compromised as well. So the first principle for you and I is that victory rests on obedience. Now, God's people on this side of the cross um, is not geographical people. We're not uh, called to take some land over and kick people out. It's a different scenario on this side of the cross. But we see the principle that God calls us to have victory over the enemies in our territory, if you will, over sin, uh, over the world, over Satan, over uh, things that displease God. Uh, Paul says they're in a spiritual battle, if you will. And so there is victory to be taken uh, in our life. And we see is that we will live victorious lives, for the most part, when we pursue obedience. I want to share a, a quick c- quote with you uh, from the great historical uh, Christian writer. I think it should be up on the screen next. Uh, Thomas A. Campus. If you ever get a chance to read any of his books, excellent. This is what he has to say. Instant obedience is the only kind of obedience there is. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Whoever strives to withdraw from obedience withdraws from God's grace. To withdraw from obedience withdraws from God's grace. The same is true in our life. As we seek to obey God, God is going to give us grace and we will live, if you will, uh, the lives that are marked by victory. And so the question that I want to ask uh, for you this morning is if you are a believer, you've placed your faith in Jesus, you've come to know God through faith and what Christ has done, you've been reborn. The question that I think the book of Judges this morning asks us, first of all, is, is, is your life, is my life marked by victory or by defeat? Is it marked by frustration or is it marked by continual progress? How is your spiritual life? Are you mostly victorious over the lustful urges that you may feel? Or does the computer, does the internet, does the TV screen have victory over you? Does uh, your impatience with your wife, uh, do you have victory over that? Or your husband for that matter? Your impatience with your spouse's quirks, does it... Have victory over you, or are you having victory over it? Outbursts of anger that you may feel when your kids just do not do what they are supposed to do. Are you having victory over that, or is your life marked by you acting more like your child than you acting like an adult? The truth is the same regardless. If we are to live as believers uh, victorious lives, it's marked 
It's marked, it's, it's enabled by the pursuit of obedience. I want to share with you a, a quick quote. This may, may hit home with me a little bit more than you, but I hope it does. Uh, who among us is familiar with the great quarterback Roger Staubach? Some of you? Okay, good. Good to hear that. Roger Staubach was a really good quarterback back in the day, I think in the 70s, for the Dallas Cowboys. Who happened to won yesterday, by the way? <clears throat> Moving right along, he was a great quarterback uh, for them in the, in the 70s, and uh, he was giving an interview, and I just want to summarize the interview, but he was giving an interview uh, with a reporter, and it came out that he, there was an apparent frustration between him and the coach, who was Tom Landry at the time, I believe. He was a great coach, legendary coach, uh, but there was kind of a quarrel, and it was over who was calling the plays. See, typically in football, uh, the coach play, uh, calls the play, and the quarterback goes, and if he sees something different, he can change the play at the line of scrimmage. He sees something he wants to to do. Uh, apparently, Roger Staubach was very frustrated um, and very proud because Tom Landry didn't let him do that. Tom Landry, uh, according to Roger Staubach in his own words, was a football genius, but he held really tight reins uh, over the play call. And so uh, he would call in the signals, and if he wanted Roger to pass, he would pass. And if he wanted Roger to run, he would run. And if Roger ever changed the play, he better be right, <laughs> and it better work. And so, you know, in the interview, Roger said, this really, you know, it hits my ego. I really want to be able to call more of my plays. And so Roger said this, though. He said, eventually, I came to the realization that it was better for my personal career, and it was better for the team and for the game if I listened to the coach. And so I want to read you one quick quote that Roger said as it applies to, I think, our life and our relationship to God in the book of Judges. He says this. I faced up to the issue of obedience. I faced up to the issue of obedience. Once I learned to obey, there was harmony, fulfillment, and victory. This is exactly what Judges is trying to tell us. When we face up to the issue of obedience, when we strive to pursue it, there will be harmony in our relationship with God and our relationship with others. There will be fulfillment because we're doing what God has made us to do. And there indeed will be lives marked with victory. So the first principle, victory rests on the pursuit of obedience. Second principle that we see is that God is the God of the impossible. Uh, this strikes me as really interesting. We see uh, Judah coming up against uh, superior military might. They didn't have iron chariots and the Canaanites did have iron chariots. And yet what did God expect from the tribe of Judah? God expected them to do what was seemingly impossible for the tribe of Judah. My guess is that they saw this technology and said, that's impossible. <laughs> There's no way that we are going to defeat that kind of weaponry. But God is the God of the impossible. And this is what he wanted to teach Judah. And I would venture to say that that's what he wants to teach us today from this lesson, is that there will be things that will come in and out of our lives, circumstances, people, that when we look at it, like Judah looked at these iron chariots, and, and we will say, just like them, God, that's impossible. That's just impossible. You want me to do what? <laughs> you want me to respond how? You want me to treat them in what way? And God says, yes, I am the God of the impossible. So a question that I think we need to pose is, maybe you're here today and you're facing what you would say, as a believer, is an impossible situation. God, how, I don't, I'm not sure that you really want me to do that. Maybe it's a 
Maybe it's the simple task of raising your kids. And you would look at that and say, you don't know my kid. God, this is an impossible task. Maybe it's a a spouse that never seems to change, regardless of what you do, regardless of what you don't do. And you're so very frustrated and you're saying, God, this seems impossible. I want to let you know that according to Judges, God is the God of the impossible. So we've seen the first section in the book of Judges, uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 1 through 21. It's marked by, by, marked by military victory, but we see just uh, an inkling of compromise. Well, what we're going to see as we get into the rest of the chapter, verses 21 through 36, is that military victory turns into military compromise. Victory is going to be marred by compromise. So let's kind of read a few of the verses here together uh, as we go along. Again, I'm going to try my best to kind of summarize this for you. What we see in this section of military compromise is three, three stories, if you will, that kind of show how God's people, how the rest of the tribes, uh, remember we looked at Judah, how the rest of the tribes began to follow in Judah's footsteps of compromising God's task for them, and thus they lost victory, and they lost God's grace. And what we're going to see is that each of these three stories that we see in this section get progressively worse and worse. They disobey God more and more and more. They compromise more and more and more. So the first story that we see is found in verse 22. Really, the whole story is in verse 22 through 26. Uh, We'll read just one verse, but I've entitled it Ephraim's Faithfulness, and it's in I do this because really uh, Ephraim is faithful not to God, but to the Canaanites that they're supposed to be kicking out. And we see compromise sneaking in. In verses 22 through 26, we get the story. Uh, Another of the uh, 12 tribes, Ephraim, uh, is going up against a city that they're supposed to overtake and kick the people out. And uh, uh, what they're supposed to do is uh, go ahead and take it. And what we see is that they make a deal. They're kind of spying out the city, and there's a man who's walking out, a man of the city, a Canaanite, who they're supposed to get rid of. And they make a deal with him. They make a covenant agreement with him. This is something that God explicitly said. Don't make deals with them. Don't make deals with them. And what we see is the downward slope of compromise. They make a deal to help get into the city. Instead of trusting God, instead of destroying uh, everyone in the city, they let him go. In verse 24, just one quick verse that we see from this story. And the spies, that is the spies from the tribe of Ephraim, and the spies saw a man coming out of the city, a Canaanite man coming out of the city that they're supposed to besiege and take and kick out. And they said to him, please show us the way into the city and we will de kindly with you. We will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let, here's another one of those buts, but they let the man and all of his family go. Let's jump back to the first first verse. It's called this Ephraim's faithfulness, but we see that um, instead of kicking people and not making deals with people, they begin deals with the people. They don't trust that God can give them the city, and so they make a deal with the foreigner. Uh, interestingly enough, the word translated here, please show us the city and we will deal kindly with you. The word really means this. We will be in it, we'll make an agreement, and we'll deal kindly, faithfully with you. Uh, the ironic thing here is that Israel, God's people, were. this is the, the word that is used that to describe how they're supposed to be with God. They're supposed to be, show kindness, covenant faithfulness to God. This is the same word. But instead, instead of being faithful 
to God, what we see is they disobey, they compromise, and they show their faithfulness, they show their covenant faithfulness with people that they're not supposed to. And so the compromise begins. In verses 27 through, 20, uh, through 33, we see the next story. First of all, I hope we can see the descent here. First of all, they're supposed to get rid of all the people. They let one family stay. Okay, no big deal. They take the city, but they let one family stay. Next of all, we see uh, not only are they letting one family stay, but as we hear the story of the rest of the tribes, they're letting the whole people groups stay. They're letting whole nations stay in the land. It began with one family, and then, starting in verse 27 with 33, and the rest of the tribes, whole peoples, they're remaining in the land when they're supposed to be kicking them out. And what we see, we don't have... Uh, Verses up on the screen. I, I just want to read these verses. But essentially what we see is uh, repetition. When an author and a preacher like myself sometimes, when we want to get points across, we say it over and over and over because we want to hammer it into your head. We want you to hear it. And this is exactly what the author is doing. This phrase, did not drive out, did not drive out. The people were supposed to drive out the Canaanites. Over and over again, five times, it's repeated like a jackhammer to our skull. It's supposed to get through our heads. They did not do it. They failed to drive out their enemies. Verse, the first one is in verse 27. I'm just going to read this. If you have your text, read along with me. Verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shean and its villages. Verse 29. And these are different tribes. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher, oh, sorry to say, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Verse 33, the fifth hammer blow to our head. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. So you see very clearly, very clearly what the author is trying to get across. It began with a slight compromise of one family, and it has turned into entire people groups that are now living in God's promised land. As one commentator by the name of Webb says, he says this, The focus of the narrative, the focus of the narrative has shifted from conquest to coexistence. coexistence. Did you get that? Conquest to coexistence. In other words, they found themselves to be sleeping with the enemy. We've seen a couple stories. The third story is found in verse 34 through 36. And I called it Dan's failure. We've seen, again, uh, a bit of a downward slide. They let one people, one family stay. They let entire tribes stay in the land, but they still occupy it. They, they take possession of the land, but they just let people stay Who's not supposed to? And then finally, in verse 34 uh, through 36, we see uh, the tribe of Dan is the most miserable of tribes. And if Dan Schumacher was here, I'd poke fun at the name Dan, but I'm not going to because he's gone. But he'll listen to it and get mad at me while he's listening to it. Dan is the worst of the tribes. They fail. Not only uh, they don't just let people stay, they don't even take possession of the land. They're not even capable of taking control of the land that God had given them. We see that uh, in the verse to come. Verse 34. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back. 
pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. So we've seen the, the, the progression of compromise completed here. There's one family, we'll let them stay. There's whole people groups, we'll let them stay. At the end of the book, at the end of this chapter, the compromise is complete. And we see that one tribe can't even occupy the land. They don't even take possession of it. And things go down and down and down and down and down and down. I'd like to share a quick story from Bits and Pieces, um, an older edition, but the story is still, is still good. I think it makes the point. I'd like to read it to you. When Christian Herder was the governor of Massachusetts, Massachusetts, is that how you say it? Sorry, I'm a southerner. We don't ever say that name. (laughs) Is that a state or something? Okay. When he was governor of that M state, he was running hard for a second term in office. One day, after a busy morning chasing votes, and he had no lunch, he arrived to a church barbecue. It was late afternoon, and he was famished. So this guy is hungry. He moved down the serving line, and he held out his plate to the woman serving chicken. She put a piece on his plate and turned to the next person in line. Excuse me, the governor said. If you don't mind, I am famished. Can I have another piece of chicken? Sorry, the woman said. I'm only supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. To which the governor replied, I'm really very hungry. I haven't eaten all day. Can I just have one more piece of chicken? Sorry, the woman said. Only one per customer. So at that point, uh, the governor was getting a little frustrated. He was a modest man, unassuming, but he decided that he would let her know who he was, throw his weight around a little bit, if you will. And he said, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. To which she replied, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. So move along, mister. (laughs) She failed the... She, she did not fail uh, in the area of compromise, regardless of what was facing her. Uh, m- much unlike we see the tribes of Israel here, they unwittingly compromised and it led to their disobedience. So that means a couple, couple more principles. We're going to wrap up here, transition into the Lord's Supper. A couple principles that we see. What does this mean for us? I think we see uh, some real good principles here. Uh, the third principle we see is that commitment... Uh, Excuse me, contentment, important difference there. Contentment leads to compromise. I think we see that in the story. Uh, Beginning with Judah, they're content with what they've got. We see the other uh, tribes being content uh, just to take control of the land, but not to do the hard job of kicking the people out that God said. And so as they were content, it led them to compromise and eventually disobedience. And so the question that I think we have to wrestle with is what areas are we allowing the enemy, if you will, to live with, with us? What, what, what areas are we content with? And how is that leading us to compromise? Maybe uh, you're here this morning again. Maybe you're a believer in Christ. You've placed your faith in him. I want to ask a tough question for me as well. Are we content with where we are spiritually? And if we are content with where we are in our spiritual life and our walk with God, I think that puts us on a slippery slope to compromise. Maybe you're content with where you are spiritually, but you hardly ever pray. Your prayer life is non-existent. The time in the Word is sporadic at best. It's short. You don't really want to do it anymore. When you look at your heart, your desires are just no longer there. Your love and your passion for God have been replaced for other things in your life, whether it be your work or your job or your spouse or your kids or whatever. 
and you're spiritually content. I think I've found myself in this position many times, and I think those of us who have been Christians for any length of time find ourselves in these valleys and plateaus. And here I think uh, the principle is when we become content, particularly spiritually, it will inevitably lead to compromise in our life. Uh, other areas, contentment, maybe uh, contentment with uh, involvement with your kids. Are you content with the level of involvement that you have with your kids? Maybe you are, but maybe you hardly ever see them at night. Maybe you don't really even have significant, meaningful conversations with them. You don't take, take time to pray with them or read the Bible with them. And really, if you really came down to it, you don't really even know much about them. Are you content in that area? Another area. What about with your spouse? This is a hard one. I think uh, you can very easily, we can very easily become content with our relationship with our spouse, with the intimacy, with the love, uh, with the kindness, with the emotional aspect of it. We can become very content with that. So I want to ask you, if you're a believer this morning, what areas maybe do you find yourself being content with and how might that lead you to compromise? Fourth principle This one should be shorter. The fourth principle, final principle, is that sin must not live among us. We see this very clearly from the book of Judges. God says, do not allow these people to live in the land that I'm giving you. They will be evil influences. They will lead you to sin. You will intermarry with their uh, their people, and they will lead you into idolatry. You will fall away from the faith, and you will involve yourself in idolatry and gross immorality if you allow these kind of evil influences to live among you. And yet, this is exactly what God's people did. They allowed them to live. They made them their slaves. We see that in the book of Judges. They said, we'll just make them our servants. They can stay with us. They're not going to be harmful to us. We'll just make them our servants. No big deal. But eventually, the ironic thing is, is that they let their enemies live with them. And what we see for the rest of the book of Judges is that these people that they let, that they let live in their land will rise up, will grow, will become strong, and will oppress Israel. Literally, those who were slaves will make God's people their slaves. And so we see the principle for us. We, mu- we, must, not li- we must not let sin live among us. And so I just want just to challenge you and I challenge myself. I mean, just kind of evaluate... I think when it comes to disobedience, sometimes we can just become so used to it. We can become so used to habits or things in our life that it's just, it's just commonplace. You know what I mean? Like we don't even think about it anymore. It's not sin. It's not disobedience. It's not dishonoring to God. It doesn't hurt our relationship with Him. It's just, it's just there. It's living with us. And so to use a kind of a rough illustration, what is it that has a place at your dinner table that shouldn't? What is it that has a, a place in a, in, you know, maybe in your bed or a bed in your house that shouldn't? You know, what is it that you're just inviting into your life, inviting into your home, inviting into your family? It has its very own place. It's got its own coffee mug with its name on it. Slothfulness, lust, whatever, whatever. It's got its own, it's got its own uh, bathrobe, you know. You see where I'm going with this. Can't let, li- can't let stuff live with us. And so I want to challenge you in that regard. What I want to do is this. I want to, I want to transition us now. Um, we've been talking about uh, victory and compromise. When God's people obey, God gives them victory. When they disobey, God allows them to go into a spiral of compromise and disobedience. As we transition, I want us to, 
take just a few minutes. Um, we're going to have some music playing in just a second. As we prepare to partake of communion, of the Lord's Supper, uh, as we partake of the bread, which symbolizes uh, the, the body of Christ, which is shed, uh, which was, uh, shed and ripped apart for us, as we partake of um, the juice, symbolizes the blood of Christ, which was spilled uh, for our sins. I want us to remember, I want us to think, all of these things that we've been talking about, where am I compromising? Where am I not victorious? What sins do you need to repent of? What do you need to be thankful for God for? Maybe you are having victory in your life and you need to be grateful to Jesus. As we do that, I want to give you just a few minutes, but I want you to remember, if you're a believer in Christ this morning, please feel free. Come take uh, of uh, the elements when you're ready. And as you do so, remember that Jesus, by his blood and by his body, uh, was the ultimate victor. We see that God says the tribe of Judah is supposed to be the lead warrior in taking victory. Significantly enough, where, where did Jesus come from? Anyone remember? What tribe? The tribe of Judah. Show a quick picture here, um, which will be a, back, a background. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. It's because he, uh, the, Jude, the tribe of Judah, pointed towards Christ, who would be the ultimate victor. Jesus on on the cross, won victory over sin, its penalty in our life, its presence, its power. He won victory over Satan, over meaningless life, and he gave us eternal life. And so I want to challenge us to think about that. So the music's going to play, and as you're ready, I invite you to come, and we'll close in song. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Maybe here this morning. Come to. You may not be sure about this Christianity thing. You may not be sure um, that you're right with God. Um, you may not have experienced some of the things that we're talking about, and uh, and you want to. So I want to let you know that um, that as we take communion, uh, we're reminded that Jesus um, bridged the gap between humanity. God loves you. He created you uh, because of what we do, because of what we fail to do. We. Um, we fail before him, and we cannot be with him. But he, in love and grace, uh, sent Jesus. He sent his only son uh, to live a life of perfection in our place, to die a death of agony, and taking the full wrath of a holy God in our place, only to be resurrected from the dead, so that we could be who we were made to be, so that we could know him, so that we could have life eternally, life abundantly, and that he can change us and make us into the humanity that we're supposed to be. And so if you've never done that, never experienced that, I want to invite you just to do that right now. Just say a quick prayer. Call out to Jesus. Uh, confess that you, are, you fall short and that he is the only thing that can do it. And God will save you and change you. Let's sing.